0: They shall mount up with wings as eagles, they shall run and not grow weary, they shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this uh, evening, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure that you are in fellowship. Scripture teaches that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for every single sin on the cross so that the debt, the certificate of debt, as stated in Colossians 212 to 14, was nailed to the cross, taken away, and having canceled the debt against us, he is then able to save us. And so all sins were paid for at the cross, but when we tr- trust in Christ, once we're saved, we still commit sin, so that we have to experientially uh, get back in fellowship every time we sin. So 1 John 1, 9 is necessary. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for all the many blessings that we have, and so often we are so used to these blessings that we have forgotten that that they are from you. And as we look around the world and we see how so many different uh, countries and cultures live, we realize that, that all that we have is not just the result of uh, American uh, hard work and American fortitude, but it is the result of the fact that this is a nation that was founded upon biblical principles, and that the early 200 years of this nation, both as colonies and later as a nation, supplied a foundation that continues to reap blessing. However, the further we get away from those roots in your word, the more that those blessings are in danger. Father, we pray that you would continue to watch over this nation, protect us, protect our freedoms, give us wise leaders who rule in a way that honors you and honors your word. Father, we pray that as we study your word tonight, we'd be once again impressed with your work in history, that we would come to understand the important role that the Jews play in history, an important way in which you have chosen them as a nation that is the custodian of your word and the nation through whom all are blessed, especially through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Father, we pray that we would be able to concentrate and focus this evening as we study. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're continuing our study in Hebrews 9 in terms of our subseries on the tabernacle. Somehow we've got, I think I've got about 12, what is it, 12 or 13 lessons so far, 14 lessons, and I have to scrunch this down to eight hours when I go to uh, somewhere north of Calgary, uh, Canada next month. If some of you remember two years ago we had John Cross here for the uh, pastor's conference, and he is the head of Good Seed Ministries, and he has invited me to come up and speak on the tabernacle at their annual Bible conference somewhere between uh, somewhere between Calgary and Banff. I just hear that's a horrible place to go, especially in November, so I'll just have to suffer and go there. But I have only eight hours to cover the tabernacle, so I'll, I'm going to have to either figure out how to talk very, very fast or cut something out, but uh, we'll, I'll be <coughs> be ready. We're studying the tabernacle, and we have gone through... All the different aspects of the tabernacle, each piece of furniture, the two pieces in the outer courtyard, the brazen altar, the laver. We've looked at the furnishings, the wall coverings, the veil. We went inside the uh, tabernacle itself, the tent of meeting. We looked at each of the different pieces of furniture inside the tent of meeting. We looked at the the, uh, uh, golden menorah, the lampstand as it pictures Jesus Christ as the light of the world. On the right side, as you go into the tent of meeting, you would see the table of showbread, which pictures Jesus Christ as the bread of heaven. Straight ahead, there is the altar of incense just by the by the veil separating the outer holy of holies from the inner holy place. The altar of incense depicts Jesus Christ in his high priestly ministry as our mediator, our intercessor. And then, as you go into the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctum of the Tent of Meeting, which the high priest of Israel would be allowed to enter only once a year on the Day of Atonement, which was just celebrated uh, last week, beginning sundown Wednesday a week ago. The Jews celebrated Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement, and that was celebrated, that was the only time. Anyone could go into the Holy of Holies. The only one who could go into the Holy of Holies was the high priest, and he had to carry out several sacrifices for himself as well as for the nation. And it is a picture, ultimately, of the positional cleansing of the nation. And I think that's an important thing to uh, deal with, is this idea of positional salvation, positional cleansing, uh, versus experiential uh, salvation, experiential cleansing. Positional has to do with our position before the uh, Supreme Court of Heaven, our our legal standing before God, which when we trust Christ as Savior, our legal standing is that we are justified, but that we still continue to sin. So once a year there's this picture of of positional cleansing, and then there's the ongoing depiction of experiential cleansing through the washing of the hands and the washing of the feet with the water and the labor. We looked at the <clears throat> construction of the Ark of the Covenant, purpose of the Ark of the Covenant, the various, uh, uh, the three items that are inside the Ark of the Covenant, the manna representing the spiritual provision of God for the spiritual nourishment of the people, which was, of course, rejected as they turned their nose up at the food God provided for them. We saw the the rod of Aaron from the almond tree, the rod that budded. There's a depiction of God's selection of Aaron as the high priest. Of course, the people had rebelled against uh, Moses, accusing him of nepotism, just putting putting his family in positions of leadership. And so God was showing that he was the one who chose the, uh, the high priest and the high priestly line. And then the third item being the uh, tablets of the Ten Commandments, picturing the law that the people had also broken. And so the top cover of the Ark of the Covenant, I pointed out, was the uh, mercy seat called the Kaforth, which pictures the place where God's justice and righteousness are satisfied by the blood sacrifice. The blood is the... Uh, exchange medium for the payment of sin, which is that which provides positional cleansing. And that's the key idea in the word for atonement. We studied that last time. I need to repeat this again and again so everybody remembers this, because most of us were brought up and taught what was commonly understood to be the meaning of the word for atonement in the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, it's kafar, spelled K-A-P-H-A-R. And if you look it up in, in a lot of older dictionaries now, and they're not some of them aren't that much older, but if you look them up in certain Englishman's-based dictionaries, such as Vine's Expository Dictionary of the Old Testament and New Testament, you even look them up in some of the Hebrew lexicons that were published earlier in the 20th century. And I point this out because a lot of these are available now in various uh, electronic formats. And there's, uh, and I know some of you have computer programs and you look at these. Some of you go to websites that have different uh, computer tools. There's different, uh, I don't know how many different, I think there's Blue Mountain Bible or Blue Letter Bible, and there's eSword and a number of others that are online. And there's a number of tools that you can get uh, that are just good programs, but a lot of people don't get the more sophisticated, expensive packages, and there's a lot of little things that people don't know about. I know this is running down a rabbit trail, but there are people who need to hear this, that, for example, when I went to seminary back in the 70s, the standard lexicon dictionary for Hebrew and Aramaic was called, we always refer to it by the initials of the author, of the editors, B.D.B., Brown Driver, And bricks. And now just anybody can go out and buy a computer program and it will come with an edition of BDB. Now the edition we used when I was in seminary was the latest edition which was published in, I believe it was 1918. That's a little old. A lot of uh, linguistic things were discovered between 1918 and 1978 just a tremendous amount of stuff. So it was uh, a- outdated even when I was in seminary. And if you use a New American Standard Bible, uh, the editors of the New American Standard Bible basically went with the primary meaning of every Hebrew word is stated in BDB, which is one of the minor flaws with the New American Standard uh, translation because it didn't take into account more recent studies. So that's a problem. But the addition that most people get in there. Computer Bible is the 1914 edition of BDB, which isn't quite as good as the 1918 edition. So you, you know it's little stuff like that that they don't they don't tell you, and you're not not familiar with because the 1914 editions in public domain, and the 1918 edition is still copyrighted by I believe it's Oxford or Clarendon that puts it out. I can't remember who. And then um, there was a German lexicon that came out in the I think in the 40s or 50s that was edited by uh, Ludwig Kohler, and I can forget the other guy's name, Baumgartner. And that was always referred to by those initials of just KB. That was revised in the 90s from a one volume work to a four or five volume work. I don't have it, I just have it electronically, so I never remember how many volumes it is. But that's considered the most recent and the latest greatest tool. For doing Hebrew studies, then there's another one that's out there that Randy Price told me about two years ago, and each it's, it's six or seven volumes, and each volume's like two hundred dollars. So we'll just wait on that one until the grace of God pops up somewhere. And uh, <clears throat> but the Halot or the uh, Hebrew Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament that came out in ninety eight is considered to be the best. And most most recent tool, but what you run into when you get onto uh, various websites with different people doing different things, is that they rely on older tools and older uh, that have older or in some cases a little bit outdated information. And one of these has to do with this word kafar, and it was always easy to remember. Kafar means to cover, and it has had that s- similar sound. But there were actually, according to most recent scholarship, two different words that were uh, homonyms or homophones that occurred in Hebrew. One was the word that was used of the pitch that Noah used in covering, sealing the ark. That is uh, the boat that he used. Ark. The word there is a different Hebrew word than ark of the covenant. And then you have the the, uh, uh, this homonym or homophone that's used in, um, in Exodus related to atonement. But what's interesting about this word is when the Jewish rabbis that they brought down to Alexandria around 250 to 200 B.C. because the uh, Hellenized Jews in Alexandria in North Egypt had lost their Hebrew uh, they needed to have a Bible in their an Old Testament in their language. So they decided to go back to uh, Israel and to find some scholars who could translate into, some rabbis who could translate into Greek, and they brought them back and they translated what was known as the Septuagint, which means the 70 because the legend was that 70 rabbis in 70 days translated the Pentateuch, and this was this was miraculous. So these rabbis... More than 50% of the time, they translated that that uh, Hebrew word kafar with the Greek word katharizo, which is the word for cleansing in Greek. And current scholarship has substantiated the fact that the root meaning of this second kafar has to do with cleansing and purification. And so the focal point of atonement is on The cleansing, the ritual cleansing and purification from sin, which I think makes a a lot more sense than the idea of covering. But because the high priest brings the uh, brings the blood in, uh, sprinkles it before the ark, and um, puts the uh, bowl up there, it covers, and the mercy seat covers. That had a certain sound to it, a certain ring to it, that it made sense to people. But that, that misses the point here. The focal point is of this idea of cleansing, the root issue that experientially in salvation is we have to be cleansed of sin, and that's related to the idea of forgiveness. So I'm running down a really off-rabbit trail here, but I think this is important. And I mentioned in my opening prayer, Colossians 2, 12 to 14, or my opening introduction related to um, uh, confession, in Colossians two twelve to 14, we have the, this emphasis on the, nail, the, the nailing of that certificate of debt to the cross, and it's related there to having nailed that to the cross, he forgives us, and so the action of nailing it to the cross precedes forgiveness. It's really the basis for forgiveness, and you also have a, a verse in Colossians one fourteen and Ephesians one seven that says in him parallel verse identical verse in him we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. Now some of you have been around more than a week or two. Remember that there was a bit of a theological uh, dust up about fifteen years ago about with over the issue of whether or not Christians really need to confess their sin. And that it's and that there were some people who were going to ephesians one seven and Colossians one fourteen and saying see it's it's at the cross that we have forgiveness." And the failure was to distinguish what is going on here between uh, positional forgiveness and experiential forgiveness, and it was also a failure to properly understand the noun that was used there for forgiveness. And the noun that's used there for forgiveness if, is, was aphasis. And aphasis is only used like five times in the New Testament. And it always bothered me because if you read, if you look at any dictionary, any theology on redemption, whether there are two basic word groups that are used for redemption in the New Testament, agorazo, which has to do with the marketplace, ex same word with a prefix or a couple of prefixes, and lutro or lutrosis, Lutrosis being the verb, Lutrosis the noun, having to do with purchasing something from the marketplace. and just standard, drill into people, what's the meaning of redemption? To buy or to purchase, to pay the price for something. But if you look at the grammar of Ephesians 1.7 and Colossians 1.14, where it says, In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It's very clear that the phrase, the forgiveness of sins, is appositional to the, the word redemption. And that means that an appositional phrase is just explaining or say the, the the head noun in other words. So, if most people think of forgiveness as just uh, not holding something against somebody or not being bitter against somebody or not being resentful of someone, and if you look it up in Webster's dictionary or the Oxford English dictionary, that's the definition you'll get for forgiveness. But that's how is the idea of me personally not harboring a grudge against somebody Appositional, How's that even related to the meaning of the word redemption? Redemption means to pay a price to purchase something. How are those two ideas related? I just that, I knocked around on that for a long time, and then I realized recently I got, went back to do another study on this that aphasis, was used not only of the idea, uh, w- wasn't used of this idea of, of not holding a grudge or not being bitter, but it was used in numerous economic contexts to refer to the forgiveness or cancellation of a debt. And that is exactly what redemption means. Redemption means to buy something or to pay for something, and that is the canceling of a debt. And then you come to Colossians 2:12 to 14. It's the same thing. It tells you that the cancellation of the debt of decrees against us is the basis for uh, forgiveness. So it puts it together, realizing that this, this issue of positional, which is just a legal term. A lot of people have trouble with that. One day I was talking to some pastors, and one guy was there as a lay pastor, and he is a he's a lawyer by profession. I've known him many, many years. And I was... Uh, I'm talking to him afterwards, and I didn't know how much of a grasp he would have on some of these things. And I said, you know, a lot of folks have trouble with position. He said, not if you're a lawyer. You stand in the courtroom before a judge, and whether you you did it or not, if you're declared not guilty, you're not guilty. That's your position before the law. It doesn't matter what your experience might have been. And that's what we mean by positional truth. It is our position before the Supreme, Supreme Court of Heaven. And so that's what's depicted with this whole ceremony of the Day of Atonement, is that positional or experiential cleansing that takes place at the cross, because it's at the cross that our debt is canceled, the sins are paid for, and it, but it's not applied until, until we trust in Christ. So the Ark is the center because it is the place where God has the focal point of his presence upon the earth. The Midrash, uh, Midrash Shehumah, says that Jerusalem is the center of the world. The Temple Mount is in the center of Jerusalem. The Temple is in the center of the Temple Mount. The Holy of Holies is in the center of the Temple And the Ark is in the center of the Holy of Holies. Now, don't you like that picture in the background? If you can see it, the picture of the second temple has been superimposed over that gold dome thing that's there. So just to give you an idea of the way things ought to be. Okay, now moving ahead, what I want to do is look at the Ark in History and Prophecy. This is an important study because it shows God's dwelling among his people and his protection and his provision for his people, and it also gives us a tremendous illustration of the fact that God is very precise in the way he has revealed that the Christian life should be led and how believers should do things. We get this idea today often that that we can come before the Lord with this sort of kind of loosey goosey idea that and whatever I want to do is a movement of the Holy Spirit within me, and so that's okay. But but it often violates a specific uh, protocol that's laid down in the Scripture, and we see this pattern of precise and specific protocol all the way through the scriptures and one of them has to do with the Ark of the Covenant. In the Old Testament, there were specific uh there were specific directions given for how the ark was to be taken care of and how it was to be transported. In Numbers chapter four, we have directions on how the Levites were to uh, pack up everything within the tabernacle and how they were to transport it. In verses 4, uh, in Numbers 4, 5, and 6, in verses 5 and 6, there's the description related to the Ark of the Covenant. When the camp sets out, Aaron and his sons shall go in, and they shall take down the veil of the screen and cover the Ark of the Testimony within. So what happens is as they're getting ready to move out, they would come in, Aaron and his sons, they would come in, and they would take the, the veil down and there would be maybe two or three of them holding the veil up. So, see, they're not going inside the Holy of Holies, and his sons are not seeing the Ark of the Covenant. They take the the veil down, and then they would walk forward, and they would cover the Ark with the veil. Then they would be able to pick the Ark up by the two carrying poles that were there because they are never removed from their... Uh, from their holders. So when the camp sets out, we read, Aaron and his son shall go in, they shall take down the veil of the screen, cover the ark of the testimony with it, and then they, they shall lay a covering of porpoise skin on it, this would protect it from the elements, and they shall spread over the cloth, cloth of blue, and shall insert its poles. Now the next thing we learn about the carrying of the ark is that, number one, it would be carried by the poles, Number two, only Levites could carry it. Deuteronomy 10:8 on the screen. And three, only those from the sons of Kohath could uh, carry the Ark of the Covenant. It was given to the tribe of Kohath, one of Aaron's sons, that theirs was the service of the holy objects. Which they uh, not one of Aaron's sons. Excuse me, one of the tribes of of, uh, of the Levites. It was their responsibility to carry the holy objects, which they carried on their shoulder, according to Numbers seven nine. And when the Israelites would move out from their encampment each morning, then the Ark of the Covenant, with the Kohathites carrying the Ark of the Covenant, would move out in front of the uh, in front of all the tribes, and they would lead the way as the people followed the Lord as He guided them through the wilderness. Now, as they went through the 40 years in the wilderness for discipline, and then you come to the end of the 40 years, and it's time for the new generation to go into the land, then it was the ark that would lead the people into the land. And this is described in Joshua chapter 3, uh, verses 6 and following. And the focal point of that has to do with the description that was given by first from God to Joshua, and then from Joshua to the people. So there's a certain amount of repetition of the commands in this chapter. So I'll just summarize it by focusing on the uh, action that occurred in Joshua 3:11 and following. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over ahead of you into the Jordan, and this is uh, in uh, direct obedience to the command that God had given to Joshua, beginning in verse 6. And so as the Levites, the Kohathites carrying the ark took off, they headed for the uh, they headed to the Jordan which is flowing at flood stage. It's early spring, they just celebrated the Passover, and the Jordan is a flood stage. You don't get a sense of this today because there, there's so much water taken out of the Jordan as it comes down from the Sea of Galilee for irrigation, both by the Jordanians to, uh, to the east and uh, the Israelis to the right or to the west, that you don't really uh, get a sense when you look at it and you go over the bridge there. It's, it's, it's about as wide as maybe four of these chairs. So there, it doesn't look like there's a lot of water there. Uh, today, But at flood stage at that time, it was quite impressive. In verse 13, we read, It shall come about when the soles of the feet of the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan will be cut off. I don't know how many of you have ever seen or been near a river that is flowing at flood stage and how rapidly that is rushing past you But what they, the Levites were told to do is to walk up to the water and to step into the flowing stage and as the soles of their feet hit the water, then it stopped. That's called trust. You believe that God is going to do it. Now remember, these, this generation did not go through the Red Sea. They've heard the stories. But their parents all died off, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, all died off as they were going through the wilderness. So they have to walk up to the water, and they have to step into it. And as they step down, the waters of the Jordan will be cut off above them. It just stops. And the waters cut off, and the waters which are flowing down from above will stand in one heap. So when the people set out from the tents, verse 14, to cross the Jordan with the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant before the people, And when those who carried the ark came into the Jordan, and the feet of the priests carrying the ark were dipped into the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows all its banks all the days of harvest, the waters which were flowing down from above stood and rose up in one heap a great distance away at Adam, at Adam, the city that is beside Zarathon, this is upstream. Those which were flowing down toward the sea of the Arabah, the salt sea, were completely cut off, so the people crossed opposite Jericho." Now, it was important for the Israelites to keep their distance from the ark, and they were told not to come within 2,000 cubits of the ark. So that's approximately uh, 1,000 yards. So they had to keep their distance. So um, the priests would have carried the ark out, the water would have stopped, and then the people probably crossed downstream about... Uh, uh, about um, uh, a thousand yards uh, or south of the uh, of the ark. Verse 17: The priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, while all Israel crossed on dry ground until all the na- nation had finished crossing the Jordan, and then they were sent back. One from one man from each tribe was sent back to the middle of the Jordan, while the ark is still there, each to retrieve a rock. Now, if you've ever been there, you know that's not difficult to find rocks anywhere in that area. They would retrieve a rock, and they came out, and they built a rock cairn. And the purpose of the rock cairn was to act as a memorial so that in future generations, fathers could teach their children so that when they came back to this spot, they would say, well, Daddy, why is that stack of rocks there? And then they could tell the story of how God had dried up the Jordan to allow them to cross over miraculously into the land that He had given them. And it is a, it shows that their advance into the land is led by the Lord and blessed by the Lord and that this is no, uh, this is no accident and it's not a result of their, uh, military prowess. And so they entered the land. And this is described there in Joshua 4 and Joshua 5. And then the first thing they do is they go to Jericho. Jericho is the lowest city on the earth. Jericho is only about 10 miles or so from the crossing of the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is about 1,400 feet below sea level. And Joshua is just probably about 800 feet uh, below sea level. And they came up to the city of Joshua. And then God gave them their marching orders for defeating and capturing the city of Joshua. This is given in Joshua chapter 6 verse 3. You shall march around the city, all the men of war, circling the city once. You shall do so for six days. Also, seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. Then on the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. Now there's approximately 600,000 Jewish males in their army and they're going to march around the city once a day until that last day, then they go around seven times. That would have taken most of the day to do that. They must have started very early in the morning, and then they would have marched in formation around the city in in silence until the uh, last time, and then the priests would blow the trumpets, and the walls would fall down. Verse 5, it shall be that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, the wall of the city will fall down flat and the people will get up, go up, every man straight ahead. And so they did what exactly what God had said to do, and the walls fell down and they captured the city. But it is the ark leading the way. Now, not every time the Israel went into battle did the ark go out in front. But at these key events, you see the ark out in front indicating something about God's leading the people. And, of course, word would go through, spread throughout all of Canaan about this particular formation and uh, this strange box that led them and that this was the ark of the Lord. Now, the next thing we read about the ark in terms of its travels is it's taken to Shechem. Now, in this map... Uh, which tracks later uh, travels, we see Shechem, which was a focus of our study on Tuesday night. We see Shechem located up here about uh, 70, 80 miles north of Jerusalem, located uh, just to the uh, east, or actually on a little bit of the saddle, uh, just a little bit east of the saddle between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And in Joshua chapter 8, uh, verse 33, we read that all Israel with their elders and officers and their judges were standing on both sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, the strangers as well as the native. Half of them stood in front of Mount Gerizim, the other half in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had given command at first to bless the people of Israel. And so it was here that they read and they sang antiphonally or read antiphonally the cursings and the blessings from the Mosaic law, and it was a covenant renewal ceremony where this generation is affirming their commitment to obey the Mosaic law. Now, following the conquest, the ark found its resting place at Shiloh. Now, Shiloh is located within the territory of Benjamin. And during the period following the conquest, we have the period of the judges. And during the period of the judges, the ark uh, is not mentioned very much, but there's one event that occurs in Joshua 18 and also in Joshua 22. And in this passage, uh, there is a battle between the tribe of Benjamin, who is being quite rebellious and idolatrous, and the rest of Israel. So there's this civil war that takes place and the high priest at the time is Phineas, who has the ark at Bethel. Now, as you see on the map here, Bethel is not is located here. It's much closer to Jerusalem. It's not in the area around Shiloh because probably because of the idolatry and the fighting. It goes back to Shiloh uh, later on. But uh, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the high priest, comes and retrieves the ark. To take it into battle against the Benjamites, they've already been defeated. The rest of the nation have already been defeated uh, twice, and now they're going to go against the Benjamites a third time. And this time, with the Lord's direction, they go to battle and defeat the Benjamites. And so, once again, showing that which side had the blessing of the Lord. Now, after all this happens, what occurred with with the Israelites? was something that occurs with a lot of Christians. And we all know Christians who sort of treat their Bible or a cross or some other symbol of Christianity as if it has some sort of inherent power some sort of talisman or good luck charm and this is the influence of paganism and of course Israel was very uh, prone to being influenced by paganism during the period of the judges and so they began to look at the ark as some kind of uh, thing that would some kind of super good luck charm that would give them victory in battle and they lose sight of the fact that it is simply a symbol of God's presence and the real issue is their relationship uh, to the God who is uh, the one who dwells between the cherubs. And so while it's at Shiloh, this is a place where Samuel ministered before the Lord at Shiloh, according to 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 3, uh, 1 Samuel 1, 9, and 1 Samuel 4, 3. Now I'm going to try to change the screen again, go to another little, here we go. Another map over here, here we have Shiloh, Shiloh over here, and then over here we have Aphek, this is Joppa or Jaffa. later on, this is the seaport from which uh, Jonah is going to leave to uh, head to Tarshish, this is where uh, Peter is sleeping in Acts 10 when he has the vision of the tablecloth coming down from heaven. And up here in red, we have Aphek. Aphek is the location of this battle that occurs between the Philistines and the uh, Israelites. And the Israelites are afraid that they are going to uh, be defeated. And so they decide, oh, we're going to go get the ark and God will protect us. And we read in 1 Samuel 4, 1 and following, uh, that's the word of uh, Samuel came to all Israel Now Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped beside beside Ebenezer while the Philistines camped in Aphek. The Philistines drew up in battle ready to meet Israel. When the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men uh, in the battlefield. So there's this initial defeat, and the people come back to the camp and rally themselves, and the elder says, Well, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us take ourselves from Shiloh. The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. No relationship with God, just treating the Ark as if it is a a good luck charm. So in verse 4 we read, the people sent to Shiloh, from there they carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who sits above the cherubim and the two sons of Eli, these worthless, no-good sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and they bring the Ark of the Covenant into the camp and all Israel shouts and the Philistines hear all this tumult going on and they say what can that mean and they hear that the ark has come and so now they're convinced that they are going to be uh, defeated beca- because uh, Israel has the ark but what happens is that the ark according to 1 Samuel 4:11 the ark of the of God was taken it was captured So now the Philistines think that they must, their God, Dagon, must be really, uh, great, really powerful. The Ark of God is taken and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, die. So this is divine discipline on the family of Eli and on his line of the high priest because of their, uh, corruption. And then in the rest of this particular chapter, chapter four, we have, and five, we have the description related to the movement of the ark. So I'm going to go back to this particular this particular slide. So we're in, you might turn with me to 1 Samuel 4 because long chapters like this are not worthy of sticking up there on a, on a bunch of slides. Okay, 1 Samuel 4. So the ark's taken. Word gets back to... Eli's family that the ark is taken, and he falls over dead. Uh, Phinehas' wife, who is pregnant, uh, has a child. Uh, She dies um, in childbirth, and they named the child Ichabod, meaning the glory of God has departed uh, from Israel. Then you get to chapter 5 and we read this and I always think this is one of the most amusing stories in all of scripture god just has not only does god have a great sense of of humor but god has an earthy sense of humor and you really see that in the hebrew text in first samuel in fact if if hebrew scholars had real integrity they would translate a number of phrases in first samuel a little differently but most people would not like those bibles because it would offend their sense of propriety it is the language is extremely earthy because the holy spirit is really making fun uh, of of the philistines and of their religion and this is so pol- and, and this chapter this is so politically incorrect today for God or for a pastor to get up and to satirize and make fun of somebody else's religion. And yet there are numerous passages in the Old Testament that are just that. They are divinely inspired satires that are poking fun at the religion of other people. And we just, in our self-righteousness, think that's wrong. But that is actually the right thing to do. That is what Christians should be doing on the offensive, is ridiculing, uh, other people's religion, not as an end in itself, but as a way to show its invalidity and its irrationality. Because that's what God is doing in these, in these, in this particular section. So the people take the ark, and they take it back to Ashdod, which is the probably the largest city in the chief city of the Pentopolis, the five cities of the Philistines, and they take it into the temple of Dagon. Dagon is the, their their god, it's the state god of the Philistines, and he's depicted usually as half fish and half man. And the people of Ashdod take the ark in there and they set it before Dagon showing that our God has conquered the God. Of the Of the Jews, and the next morning they go in, and God has knocked Dagon down on his face, and Dagon is bowing down to the God of Israel as represented by the Ark of the Covenant. So the Phil- Philistines probably don't know exactly what has happened yet, so they uh, raise the uh, idol back in place and then they get up early the next morning they go back into the temple and this time God wants to make sure they get the message so Dagon is not only down on his face but they uh, his head and his uh hands are are cut off and uh set aside so that only the the only thing is there is a torso and this was typical uh kind of torture that pagans engaged in in the ancient world Jews did not but the pagans did where they would decapitate, um, they would decapitate an enemy. They would cut off their hands and their feet. This is one way in which they would count the enemy dead: is by collecting their hands. So um, it was also a probably the actual uh, forerunner etymology of the word disarmament, because if you don't have an arm, you can't throw a spear. And you can't hold a sword. That's why in the early part of Judges, when they um, uh, capture, I forget his name right now, uh, but they defeat Kushan rishathaim I think who it is, and they cut off his toes and cut off his thumbs. Well, why, and Israel shouldn't have done that. That was a sign they were already being influenced by pagan ideas rather than trusting God to protect them. They were trusting in these pagan methodologies, and it was just an early form of disarming, disarming the enemy cut off their thumbs and cut off their toes, and you, you've effectively rendered him uh, incapable in of ever fighting you again because he can't hold a sword, can't hold a spear. So anyhow, God's having a lot of fun with this, and Dagon is bowing down before the ark, and now uh, God is going to give them another little, little fun event. And in verse 6, the hand of the Lord is heavy on the people of Ashdod, and he ravaged them and struck them, with tumors, And I really like the way the King James translates this as hemorrhoids. It was extremely painful tumors in their posterior. It wasn't exactly hemorrhoids, but the people are struck with these tumors that are extremely painful and do not allow them to, to sit down. But they immediately understand that this is a result of, of the God of Israel in verse 7. And so in verse 8, they decide they're going to have a meeting with all the, all of their leaders to try to decide what to do with the Ark of the of God. So they say, well, he doesn't like it here in Ashdod, so let's send him over to Gath. So with friends like that who needs enemies, so they send the Ark of the Covenant over to Gath, which is the next city, and, and then we're told in um, uh, verse 8, therefore, they, and uh, excuse me, verse uh, Verse 9, they carried it away to Gath. And then in verse 10, they sent the ark of God to Ekron. So it was the ark of God came to Ekron. The Ekronites cried out, saying, They brought the ark of the God of Israel to us to kill us and our people. So God is taking care of himself. The picture here is that Israel needed to learn to trust God to be their defender, and they didn't need to trust In anything else, they didn't need to trust in a standing army. They didn't need to trust in other weapons. They needed to just relax and trust God to protect them. And so even so, God has been captured, and now he's being taken around to the various cities of the Philistines, and God is fully capable of taking care of, of all of them. And eventually what happens is that they send him back to the Jews on a cart, And they're going to attach two uh, milk cows to this uh, this ark. I mean, to to the ark to carry the ark back. And the idea is that milk cows are not broken. They've just had um, they've just had calves, and so the mothers do not want to be separated from the calves. And so the last thing in the world two untrained mama cows are going to want to do is be yoked together and to pull a cart. They're going to want to go in different directions, and then we're going to want to go back to their babies. So it shows a miracle here that God is directing things when the milk cows take them back and take them back. They, they also add their uh, images that they've created of the tumors and the rats that have. I wonder what those, tum- what those really look like. I have no idea what a gold hemorrhoid looks like. always wanted to know. So they send them back. And the cows, verse 12, head straight to Beth Shemesh. The cows headed straight for the road to Beth Shemesh and went along the highways, lowing as they went, and did not turn aside to the right hand or the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them to the border of Beth Shemesh. Watching, what's going to happen? Probably amazed that it worked and that the ark went on a straight line to Beth Shemesh. Now, the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and they lifted their eyes and saw the ark and rejoiced to see it. Verse 15, the Levites took down the ark of the Lord. See, there was an understanding that only Levites should handle the ark. The reason nothing happened to the Philistines is they're putting it on the ark is because they're not under the law, and God is allowing them to do that so that the ark would be taken back to Israel. Now, verse 15, the Levites took down the Ark of the Lord, the box that was with it, in which were the articles of gold, and put them in a large stone. The men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices to the Lord that day, including the two uh, cows that had brought the uh, cart uh, back to, to Israel. And verse 16, when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned to Ekron uh, the same day. Now, there's a further problem, though, with what happens in Beth Shemesh. In verse, verses 19 to 20, the men of Beth Shemesh become curious, thinking they can control things and they're going to peek and try to look inside the ark of the Lord. And so God struck down the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark and he struck down 50, 50 uh, thousand and seventy men of the people, and so the people lamented because the Lord had struck them with a great slaughter. The point is the ark can only be handled in a, in a specific and precise way. You can't just handle God any way you want to. God tells us exactly how we are to approach him and the basis for our relationship to him, and man cannot make it up on his own, man cannot have a relationship with God unless the uh, unless his unrighteousness has been dealt with and he approaches God in a uh, cleansed manner. And so we come to verse one of the next chapter, and the men of Beth of Kiriath Jearim, where they take the ark at the. Uh, In verse 21, they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have brought back the Ark of the Covenant. Come and take it. Come and get it away from us. And so then the men of Kiriath-Jerim came, took the Ark of the Lord, brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill, and consecrated Eleazar his son to keep the Ark of the Lord. So this is now in the house of a Levite, and Eleazar has been properly consecrated, set apart, to take care of the Ark of the Lord. And he will take care of the Ark of the Lord for 20 years. But there is a greater length of time between this time and the time when David finally takes it uh, into, into Jerusalem. The Ark was in the land of the Philistines for approximately seven months, and now the Ark has been, uh, been returned and taken to Kiriath-Jerim. Now, Kiryat Jerim is the modern, uh, town, suburb of Jerusalem, actually Abu Ghosh. Those of you who were on the trip to, the first trip we took to Israel a couple of years ago, Abu Ghosh is where we had our last night dinner. So that's where Kiryat Jerim is. That's about nine miles from the Temple Mount. So that was, that was, uh, Abu Ghosh, the modern, uh, modern Arab village, which is the ancient Kiryat Jerim. Three principles that are emphasized here. First of all, God is never defeated, though God's people may be defeated. God and his plan are never defeated. And I think that's a particularly appropriate principle in light of this election year. There's so many people that are very upset, depressed, discouraged with news related to uh, the election. And we have to understand that history is under the control of God And however the election goes, this is how God is working out history. And just because uh, someone who we do not believe is the right person or the right uh, people get elected and we don't have good leaders, this nation is filled with people who do not have the integrity and the knowledge and the wisdom, uh, any orientation to Scripture or reality whatsoever on both sides of the aisle, to function as, as leaders of this nation. And so we have to recognize that uh, we, we most of the time we have choices between somebody who's 100% bad and somebody who's 90% bad. And most of these leaders are just going to take us in the wrong direction, but they're not the leader we're trusting in. Cursed is the man who trusts in man. We are to trust in the Lord, and God is never defeated. His plan will work itself out. The second principle related to that is God is greater than anything in human history. He defeated the Philistines. He made fun of the Philistines. But God is the one who ultimately will demand respect and to be treated ultimately with honor and respect as occurred in, in uh, Israel when he returned. And then third, God does not need us to protect him or to give him security or to take care of him. God is perfectly capable of making sure that it's, his plan uh, works itself out in history. Now, the next thing that happens after they have brought the ark back and it comes to kiriath Jereem and it comes to the house of, of uh, Abinadab and Eleazar, it is going to stay there for some time. Now, during the period that um, that follows this, it's 1 Samuel 7, 1 Samuel uh, nine, we have the anointing of Saul. The, uh, apparently, the ark is uh, is kept there at Kiriath-Jerim throughout most of uh, the period of, of Saul. Throughout most of Saul's period, there's one time possibly when the ark is taken and moved, but it stays in the house of, of Eliezer. One time, it's taken out at the Battle of Michmash, which is recorded in 1 Samuel 14:21. It's taken out by Saul and returned to the house of Eleazar. Now, in terms of the chronology of this, we're told that it spent 20 years in the, in the house of uh, with Eleazar, and that's when um, Abinadab dies. And then there is a uh, a 40-year period with Saul and a 10-year period for the reign of David. And all of that, then a couple of those periods may overlap. So it's a little bit uncertain exactly how it works out, but it's at least a period of 60 or 70 years before David will bring the ark into Jerusalem. And so it stays with that family. So Abinadab is a Levite, his son is Eleazar, and Eleazar has two sons and these are the two sons that are going to be involved in the transfer of the ark into um, the transfer of the ark into Jerusalem. And there we're going to see the problem with Uzzah and Ahio, and they are the two brothers who are the sons of Eleazar who are not going to be properly trained for the transfer of the ark. And what I want to do is just stop there tonight because we're at a good transition point before we get to uh, David's moving of the ark into uh, Mount Zion, and then we'll come back and look at that, what happens with uh, Solomon, and also what has happened to the ark of the covenant and where might the ark of the covenant be today. And uh, I think there's a good chance that we know, but we won't know until we know. So we'll address that next time. Let's bow our heads in closing prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things and be reminded that you are the God who controls history. You are the God who is working out your plan in history and though things may not go the way we would like them to go and though we were faced with crises and chaos around them, around us, it is no different from the crises and chaos that often surrounded Israel Uh, during times in the Old Testament. And yet again and again, we see the lesson that you control history and that you are the one who is able to provide for your people and to protect them. And just as you provided for and protected them in the Old Testament, we know you can provide and protect us in this church age and in our modern time. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with these things that we've studied, these truths, and that we might not forget them. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.